Nothing quite compares to life's mortality rate. It's universal and unavoidable. Its forms are as varied as the people it claims, but despite its ubiquity, the idea of dying can be uncomfortable, frightening and taboo, perhaps because of the unknowns that surround it. When will you die? How? What will it feel like? Will your life have been what you wanted it to be? What will happen to those you love when you're gone? And of course, what, if anything, happens after? If all of this troubles you, you aren't alone. Humanity has spent thousands of years developing technology, theology, and philosophy to cope with this discomfort, often in an attempt to defeat death and sometimes simply to befriend it. Today we hear the story of Carrie Peterson, a man whose livelihood has been death for the last 37 years. Carrie is in charge of the body donor program at the University of Utah, but his familiarity with death and dying in no way means that he is at ease with it. Just a quick disclaimer, this story includes some profanity. If that bothers you or you're listening with young kids, we want to warn you from the outset. One last thing, we spoke with Carrie in his office just off of the anatomy lab at the University of Utah, and it was a little echoey in there. You'll also hear some squeaks, and when you do, just visualize Carrie with his hands behind his head, relaxing back in his swivel chair as he recounts his life. I dare you not to smile as you listen. Okay, take it away, Carrie. Death always freaked me out. I didn't want to think about it. As a young child growing up, was, I had three options of getting from my house to downtown in Tremont. And the quickest route for me to get to the donut shop, Stan's Bakery, would have been for me to just go straight down the road, and that would have taken me right in front of the mortuary. And even at a young age, uh, really to the point I started working there, I would not go down that road. Tremonton's a small town in northern Utah, not far from the Idaho border. Tremont's a booming metropolis now. You know, when I lived there, there were like 1,100 people that lived there. And uh, there weren't many opportunities for a high school kid to make any money uh, other than farming. I grew up bucking hay, uh, hoeing beets. That wasn't really my cup of tea either, let's just put it that way. Tremonton was primarily a sugar beet town when Carrie was growing up there. The beet farmers were paid not by the pound of beets they harvested, but by the sugar content of their crop. Farmers knew they could make more if they waited for the first freeze of winter that drove the sugar in the leaves down into the beets. After the mechanical beet digger had pulled the beets out of the ground, teenagers like Carrie would spend the day gathering beets, lopping off the leaves and throwing them into the truck. And that's what you do all day long. Walk up and down rows, pull beets out, top them, uh, slobbing through mud, a lot of it. Uh, uh, you start when it's freezing and you're done when the sun's like 80 degrees, it seems like. And uh, it was maybe my third day of this. And a friend of mine in town who was working for the mortuary came up to me and he said, uh, I'm moving to Merced. Uh, you should apply for my job at the mortuary. And my initial response was no effing way. After uh, a couple more days of walking rows of beets and pulling beets out of the ground, I, I mean, you don't have a hell of a lot to do out in those fields, but think. And uh, while I was thinking, I was thinking that Cadillacs and air-conditioned buildings and uh, the mortuary might be a lot better environment for me to make some coin in than walking up and down in the mud and driving John Deere. So I went and applied for the job. When he interviewed for the job, Carrie was upfront about his fear of death. 
He asked the managers of the mortuary if he'd have to see dead bodies, and the manager said no, that there were other jobs that he could do. Carrie was 16 when he first started. One of my jobs was to vacuum the chapel, and uh, if uh, there was a body set up for viewing that night, I couldn't even look at the body. I'd push the vacuum until it hit something looking away, and then just back away and push it back until it hit something and back away. And That'd be the beer that was holding the casket that I was banging into. But uh, after time went on, uh, I started to see some of the beauty in the business, the service to families. Uh, the worst possible things happen to them. They don't know what to do. And, uh, there's a lot of uh, glee in helping folks out. He was finding meaning in his new job, but death still haunted him. I don't know it was so much seeing the dead bodies. It was thinking about the death part of it. I'm not well adjusted to the whole thing. I grew up around people that had a testimony that God existed, that there was an afterlife. That I wanted that knowledge, but I, I was always skeptical. I mean, I, I, I didn't just digest that stuff. Maybe there's sociology that goes with that. My mom uh, minored in astronomy, and I grew up looking at stars, knowing how old the universe was. I had some serious questions about uh, what people thought uh, happened. And I'm not comfortable with the notion that when you die, everything ends. Uh, and that's not necessarily the notion I subscribe to, but uh, that was my feelings at the time. Is, uh, for some reason, I thought about it. I remember the notion that, you know, one moment you're alive and one moment you're not, and then what? And it's the, and then what? It wasn't the looking at dead bodies, it was the, you look at dead bodies and then I thought, and then what? Carrie graduated from high school early and began looking for jobs outside of Tremonton. When I left the mortuary in Tremonton, uh, I had in no way uh, made the decision that I wanted to be a mortician. I, I still did not want to. I, it was a job. It was now interesting. Uh, I picked up skills. Now I was looking at bodies. I went on calls and picked up bodies with my boss. And, Helped on funerals, and I could go in the morgue and see a drop of blood without getting lightheaded and, and all the rest of it. And, um, but I still didn't want to do this. But Carrie did want to get his life started. I wanted to get school out of the way and get that paycheck, you know, coming in, get my life set, go to work. Mortuaries were what he knew, and mortuaries were hiring. But it wasn't until he applied for a job at the Evanson and Early Mortuary in Provo that things really seemed to be coming together. Carrie's grandmother had recently passed away, leaving a house and a large cherry orchard in Provo that needed caring for. At the same time, the mortuary in Provo was taking interns. They were willing to help pay for his mortuary science training with the expectation that he'd return to work for them. The opportunity seemed perfect. A house and a career in one— Carrie moved to Provo and completed the associate's degree required for mortuary school in California. When he began his training in L.A., he was shocked by how much he began to love school. I became something I'd never been in my entire life, which was a gunner. If you're unfamiliar, gunner is a med school slang for a student who goes hard to be at the very top of their class. 
<laughs> no bones about it, man, you know, is uh, I kicked ass while I was down there, and that's never been like me. But I didn't want my old lady to tell me I was stupid, and I didn't want the dean to think I was, you know, and uh, so uh, I, I worked pretty hard on the curriculum. The, the curriculum itself is pretty fascinating. Uh, I mean, anatomy is anatomy. I've done uh, restorative arts. That's you know, pretty cool to take a body that maybe had an eye and an ear and put a face together. His training was comprehensive. He learned about the biochemistry of embalming, diverse religious and funeral traditions, and the art and science of facial reconstruction. For the first time in his life, he enjoyed school. But it wasn't for everyone. The school admitted 120 students and graduated 38. Carrie's still not sure if the high attrition had to do with other students' qualms about death. Dudes don't sit around and talk about their weaknesses, eh? <laughs> and uh, I didn't talk about this stuff, you know, uh, for years. Uh, I was uh, I was in the midst of trying to discover, you know, what happens when you die. Carrie saw answers in various religions, but remained dissatisfied. So he explored other methods. You realize this is like the '70s and. Uh, Los Angeles, and so I was—I went off to OBEs, like, man, if you can get out of your body and see shit, you know, then that proves you got some sort of soul, you know, and so uh, regressive hypnosis, uh, it, those were advantages I took of Los Angeles, because the freak show was down there and there was plenty of access for it. There, so many different things, so many different avenues. Does the soul have weight? People have tried to weigh bodies. I'm obviously not the only person that's tried to figure this soul crap out because there's a lot of people that have tried to study this with testing, you know, different kinds of testing, you know. And so in California, man, like I said, the freak show's there. I was in on every little bit of it I could suck up while I was there. And frankly, at one point in my life, I. I thought that perhaps on Earth there were people that had souls and then that there were people that were uh, facilitators. And oddly, I became comfortable with that. I, I, okay, all these people know they have a soul. I have no freaking clue and I've been looking for years, you know. And so I must be a facilitator. The people that believe they have souls have souls. And I'm just down there as a, as a machine, you know, as a biological uh, infarct of... Uh, cosmic development, you know, that, that got me through for a long time. Carrie had now completed his training and returned to Provo with his wife to a house and a job. It's a situation. At least at first. Provo is not my kind of place. I never assimilated into the community down there. It's, uh, you have your exceptionally righteous folks, and there's an awful lot of those. And then you have a counterculture. He couldn't find a happy medium between those extremes. As Carrie admits, Provo's grown a lot since the 80s, but 30 years ago, Carrie found it intolerable. The counterculture was a little bit more counter, uh, quite a bit more counter than I was because they couldn't stand the culture. And uh, the culture itself was not my kind of people. He and his wife began looking into jobs outside of Provo. Funeral directors were in high demand in those days, and so Carrie could choose just about anywhere in the country to work. In their search, his wife, who worked in real estate management, 
was offered her dream job just to the north in Salt Lake City. So there they went. And that's where Carrie found a position that fit his personality a little better. That was a great gig. Uh, the best friends I've made since high school to this day have been the owners of the mortuary down there, one step now. Yeah. But uh, I really enjoyed working there. Despite the great work environment, the work began to wear on him again. The issue I had was the business itself and not who I was working for. It was the money. A lot of the people that we dealt with didn't have the same kind of money that I was used to folks having. And people had come in and I was making funeral arrangements and they'd run up a tab, and, you know, as you go through uh, services and merchandise and I'd look at them and I'd say, you'd run up a $5,000 bill, how do you plan on paying for this? Day after day I'd watch the blood drain out of their faces and you knew they didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. And, I mean, they'd come up with money and, and bury their loved ones, but uh, that being a uh, component of my job, and it had always had been, but uh, for some reason it really started eating at me. His coworkers told him to try and separate work from personal life. But for Carrie, that was impossible. I don't have this wall. I don't walk away from work and work is gone. I, uh, I cannot do that. I've tried to do that. No, leave that at work. Fuck. Hell no. It's like, <laughs> who can do that? And so that stuff would go home, the white, why are you so melancholy tonight, you know, and uh, you don't want to crimp anybody else's mirth with, you know, what's kind of what's crimping your mirth. And eventually it, I just needed to do something else with my license. One day, one of Carrie's friends at the mortuary delivered a body up to the University of Utah Med School as part of the med school's donor program. He came back and he said, while I was thinking about leaving, and he said, man, the guy running that program must be a million years old. And I keyed on that, and I called the program up uh, the next day or maybe a couple of days later, and after I chewed on it a little bit, and they said, yeah, you know, funny thing is, uh, he announced a couple weeks ago that he's going to retire in X months or whatever it was. And so I knew about this job before anybody else in the world that <laughs> this job was coming open. Carrie pounced. The job was his before it was even posted. When he started, the donor program had not yet been formalized, even though the university had been accepting bodies from donors since the early 1900s. Before Carrie arrived, the university would get calls from families around Utah and the Intermountain area, and then head out with a U-Haul picking up the bodies, a bit too close to Monty Python for Carrie's liking. Even when I started here, this place didn't have a donor program. It didn't have a phone number. It didn't have professional literature. It didn't have a mission. It didn't. It, it was a place that accepted bodies and it didn't serve families. Uh, and the bodies came in. Somebody did the paperwork, and students, you know, decided the bodies got cremated, and that was it. Clearly, there was a lot that needed to be done. But for Carrie, it was a perfect fit. It allowed him to use his skill, and since donors had their funeral expenses covered, he no longer had to hand over massive bills to families. Another thing I liked about this is that it wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing. I didn't know what a donor program did, but I quickly learned that this wasn't it. Carrie's training as a funeral director had taught him that the number one priority should be families. Acquiring the bodies and teaching the students were important, 
but meant little if the wishes of the donor and the family were not respected. We serve families first, uh, and we advocate for the family over their wants, their needs, their desires over the university's needs, wants, and desires. And while I've never formalized that statement with the university, anybody I've ever dealt with, my chairs, deans over the years, you know, they agree with that sentiment. Is, uh, that's how you run a reputable program, is you have somebody looking out for, for them, you know, and not for the university. At the same time, the demand for bodies was high. People need bodies, you know. The University of Utah needed bodies, and people were calling me and you know, saying, I got nothing for you. Carrie believed that there were simple ways to spread awareness for the program. He could see the potential it had and wanted to take it there. So he outlined his plans and took them to the man who hired him. Excitedly, Carrie shared his new vision, even arguing that he could make it pay for itself. And Marcus looked at me and he said, uh, no, you know, he says, uh, with everybody we get, there's uh, potential liability, and uh, let's just keep it going like it's going. And then uh, Marcus became not the chair. Uh, we had an acting chair named Dick Moore. And I knew uh, Dick had more interest. So Kerry tried his pitch again. I put together this presentation that I called Pat Snare. Yeah. You heard that right. PAP was public awareness programs, and then SMARE was statistical maintenance, evaluation, and revision. Kerry is as cheeky as he is clever. Basically, Kerry told Mullen that the body donor program could stay on its current course, leading the University of Money, or they could get their act together and become a program that could sustain itself, both financially and by meeting the state's growing demand for cadavers. He pointed out simple changes to make donation more accessible. You know, it behooves one to have a phone number. At the time, the program didn't have one. They'd have to call the universe. I want to donate my body. Well, let me transfer you to the hospital. Uh, well, let's try pathology. Well, let's try, let's try, let's see, you know, you know, and uh, the fact that we had 40 donors a year when I started was a freaking miracle <laughs> because people would have to make it through all this crap. I mean, we didn't even have a phone number. Carrie also began working with the university's community relations department to share information about body donation with local news outlets. And there were news magazines on after the news. You'd have the national, local, and then a half-hour show with three vignettes of what's going on. It's newsy. And so we ended up being on those quite a bit. You know, it's families that talk about, you know, why dad donated, or researchers that talk about, you know, what their projects were. And I tap students, and uh, students that talk about, you know, what they learned. And uh, the message is that, you know, there's value to donating your body. Within a couple of years, we had doubled. And we'd gone from 40 bodies a year to 80 bodies a year. Today, that number is 250. While his work improving the donor program was rewarding, Kerry found great satisfaction in working with students in the anatomy lab. I didn't know it, but I actually like school when I'm not a student. <laughs> it's, uh, and the ability to be able to teach people, I, I didn't realize that that was going to be fun. I found that my personality uh, for many students works. Even being a geezer, 60 years old, I can somehow connect and teach people something. And uh, that's been different, you know, that's, that's nice. Decades in this unique line of work have taught Carrie interesting things about human beings and their bodies. We find it fascinating that you 
start cutting on a 108-year-old, and on the inside, they start looking an awful lot like an 18-year-old. You may have heard that people are living longer now compared to previous generations. Well, Carrie has seen that statistic incarnate. When I started in the mortuary business at just about 16 years old, by the time I'd made the decision to go into it at 20, I was scared shitless to turn 50 years old. And, and the reason for that is because a good number of the bodies that were coming into the mortuary those days were 50-year-old dudes that kissed their wife goodbye that morning with a lunch pail and a chapstick and a handkerchief and change in their pocket and car keys and drove off to work, tanked at work and died. You know, and, and God, the, it was 50 to 60-year-old dudes. And not many women in that. They were just guys, and I'm thinking, Jesus, I don't want to be anywhere near 50. But the technology advanced. Medicine advanced. With statins, stents, improved diagnostics, artificial valves. By the time I turned 50, I forgot that I was afraid to turn 50. Medicine did that, you know, and I'm grateful. I'm, I'm thankful for that. These people are my heroes. Uh, that work would not have happened without those bodies. This year, the anatomy lab has four bodies over 100 years old, and Carrie expects that number to continue to rise in coming years. There are also trends in who chooses to be a donor. They are oftentimes people who have benefited from the healthcare system. Uh, they got an extra five years uh, or more. Uh, they would have been dead 10 years ago, that kind of thing we hear an awful lot of. Uh, if it wasn't for the heart valve, if it wasn't for this, if it wasn't for the university hospital, if it wasn't for medicine in general. Uh, so altruism is a huge... Uh, these people don't call, hey, I want to cheap out on a funeral. These people call and uh, what do we talk? And we talk to everybody, you know, everybody. Um, uh, these people are, are people who want to benefit mankind. You know, they want their body to be useful beyond their death. And if they can do something uh, for mankind, uh, uh, that's good for them. Uh, oftentimes, that's the way they've lived their entire lives. We get a lot of school teachers who we hear from them and from their family. They wanted to keep teaching. You know, so even though they can't talk, their body is there still teaching. That's what they did. You know, that, that's what they like to do. That's their legacy. We've got a doctor we're putting in the lab this year with his stethoscope. Uh, his family wanted a stethoscope to come with him, you know, and uh, he's an alum of the University of Utah School of Medicine. We've had a lot of uh, U of U doctors that have donated. Uh, we usually have a doctor or two a year. We usually get two or three university professors a year. None of my old students yet, you know. And I've got uh, 17 months left. Don't let's let's just keep that as a yet, and maybe make that a never. Despite some rumors, most of the people who donate their bodies are not low income. I hear this a lot, and nothing could be further from the truth is that poor people donate because they don't have the money to do so. And our experience is, is poor people don't donate because they want to prove to their peers. It's important for them to prove to their peers that they can attend to their debt in a traditional manner. They're worried that their peers are going to think they couldn't do anything else but donate grandma to. And that is a deterrent, and I understand that. 
As program director, Carrie is responsible for responding to questions and requests from donors and their families, often over the phone. We talk to families in every way. Uh, people call up and want to, I want some information for my neighbor, <laughs> you know, and it's for them. Uh, or uh, I just found out I'm going to die in six weeks. Um, those are great conversations. And, uh, Others are, you know, I, I don't know when I'm going to die, but I want to make arrangements and other phone calls or my mom just died, you know. And so um, those phone calls all go different. If somebody calls and just wants information for themselves, they're entertaining the notion of body donation. We, I start, uh, we'd like everybody to know that you can have a funeral before you donate. Uh, you don't have to, but you have that ability. Uh, mortuary, uh, mortuary expenses are going to be up to you. Um, if you elect to do that, and we talk about a couple of the details, if they go that way, if not, then call us, you know, and then talk about our transportation range. Uh, uh, <clears throat> we accept, uh, so after I talk about, you know, funerals, not funerals, uh, most people these days are, no, we don't want a funeral first. Uh, I talk about the transportation. Uh, so we'll pick up bodies and bring them here if the death occurs somewhere between Smithfield, Garland to the north, Camas, east, Wendover West, uh, Mona, uh, south. And if they die beyond that range, we talk, we're still honored to accept the body, but the transportation, march or expense to get the body here would be up to the family. And some have gone for that, and a great number every year go for that. And um, after the transportation, I tell them what we do, what they could expect. A good deal of what we do is, that's uh, what I hope we do, is comfort the families, you know, and uh, part of that comfort is letting them know that this gift is appreciated, that it's respected. And so ultimately, uh, I often say donors are my heroes. These conversations often leave Carrie with lots to ponder. Most of the time we deal with people that are struck that are breathing, that are, the sky is different today. And uh, there are other people that, you know, I'm so happy that mom's dead. And, uh, you know, dad's been dead for 20 years now, the two of them are together, you know. So maybe for those people, that's a good death. You know, I, I, far be it for me to judge. Uh, Nobody in my life that I love is going to be a good death for me. I don't think that there's any purely good death. Uh, there are, in the notion that there's always people that hurt. You know, it's uh, over and over, you know, you hear uh, they're in a better place. They've struggled an awful lot. I, things we hear from families, you know, and, uh, but it's still tragic, you know. Is uh, even if they've taken care of that person for ten years, done everything possible for them, uh, that person's now dead. Uh, it's a person they loved, obviously, and now there's a huge hole in their life. And uh, so I'm not sure any death is in it of itself good.
Carrie's now a mortuary veteran. But after all of those years, that pit in his stomach he felt walking past the funeral home as a kid hasn't fully left him. That was years and years of struggle. I don't think I came to peace with that. I'm still not in peace, to, in total peace with that entirely, but uh, until maybe five years ago, you know, I'm 50, 57, something like that, I finally came to some peace in my own body about this. Uh, it, it, it's been a trial, you know, I, this hasn't been easy for me being around and up and you get to reminiscing. You know, and you think about what you've done and what's gone through your hands, and uh, you start thinking back at 10,000 dead uh, in your career, and, and you start thinking about some of the tragedies. Uh, generally, uh, in most cases, any death, uh, the death of a 108 year old is a tragedy for somebody, you know, a daughter, a son. Uh, Sometimes there's only granddaughters left at that point in time, and the death of their grandmother brings up the death of their parents. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not in a real um, joyful industry. I'm not surrounded by glee and jumping puppies every day. And, uh, and sometimes that weighs on you, and, and then sometimes, I guess, being feeble as I am, <laughs> and I'm not feeble, but, uh, you know, sometimes it just all adds up and uh, I go to a dark place for a little while and I, you know, uh, do whatever people like me do and get over it and, and you know, put, put my big girl panties back on and go to work, you know, I, that's, uh, that's what we do. Uh, I've had uh, people I know in the business, uh, a close friend, uh, a funeral director, committed suicide. Uh, I think maybe the business had a little bit to do with that. Uh, one of the owners of the mortuary I worked at uh, did the same thing uh, in Pasadena. Uh, maybe the business had something to do with that. Uh, I don't know. Still hasn't found the reassurance he yearned for in his search for the soul, but working for the body program, Kerry has found some glimmers of the beauty in death. I've been a mortician for a long time. We've dug up disinterred bodies that have been buried. Uh, I've witnessed thousands of cremations and uh, haven't quite seen this chemical dissolving thing happen yet, uh, but no issue with that uh, kind of thing either. But there's nothing magical that happens. I, if, frankly, what happens with somebody's body after you die is a manner of disposition. Uh, there's uh, the monument of somebody's life without life, and what are you going to do with that? Uh, putting it in the ground is not... Uh, none of the options are beautiful, you know, I mean... Uh, uh, but uh, there's some magic that happens with donation. Despite that magic, Kerry recognizes he needs to get away from work for a while. Completely away. In fact, when we spoke with him, he told us he doesn't yet feel comfortable donating his own body. But I gotta explain that, you know, is uh, when I was in the mortuary business, I had my paperwork set up to be a body donor. And <clears throat> after I started here, and after I'd been here a couple of years and kind of realized I was gonna set, um, when I started here, I didn't give myself eight years. I'd become 
I was looking back at my life going, well, maybe you're a job hopper, you know, maybe you just get bored, maybe it's not that you don't like charging money or you don't like this environment, maybe you just get tired of stuff and you need to move away. And um, after I came here, I kind of started figuring out, God, I might actually stay. <laughs> this might be a good gig. This might, this might keep me entertained for a lifetime, and it has, you know. And, uh, but I have nothing against being picked on. I have nothing against my body being cut up. I've got uh, absolutely no shame, you know. I, I'll, I'll skinny dip to this day, you know. It's, uh, uh, I've got no issues with any of that crap, you know. The reason uh, I'm not donating is, uh, while I believe in this, uh, I've been up here for 34 years, and August 14th, it'll be 34 years, and I love my job, I like what I'm doing, I'm satisfied, uh, don't want anybody to, I'm honored to work at the University of Utah, this is cool, uh, this is a good gig for me. Uh, uh, I think I've been good for them, I think they've been good for me, but, and but, I never set out in life to save the world, <clears throat> I, I set out in life to, to not work, <laughs> that, was, that was my goal, is to not work, to, to get to that point as fast as I could, and uh, every morning my alarm goes off at 5.15, and I do not pirouette to the coffee pot and go, whoopee, another work day, I'm going to go save the world. I go, shit, it's another work day. And I drag my ass out of bed, uh, sit in dread, having to leave the house while I'm downing enough coffee to keep my eyes open, you know, uh, commute, flip the bird at people that cut me off and, uh, and, and get up here, you know, and, and enjoy my work day for the most part. But, I've done that every day for the last, you know, 34, 35 years, you know, and so it, I can't, I can't fathom the notion of, you know, retiring and having woken up that way, you know, again, man, I, I, I like my gig, you know, but uh, I cannot fathom the notion of retiring and dying and having my ass drug out there. <laughs> you know, one more time. I need, I need some new scenery. I need, I need to get away from this place for a little bit. I love it, but I, uh, you know, enough's enough, kind of thing. I really need to get my head straight. I, I need to get away from death. Carrie's wish for his upcoming retirement is to forget about death for a little bit. You know, I'd get those thoughts about death, and I'd go, "No, I don't have to think about that." You know, it's kind of like trying to fall asleep on Christmas Eve, or uh, what happens if I don't breathe. If, I forget to take a breath kind of thing, you know, it's a, I need to come up for a, I know I need to forget that I'm going to die. I, I can't walk in to the door of work and be surrounded by a hundred bodies and, and not think one of these days, you know. You cannot deny death, you can't forget about it in this business, you know, it's, it's there with you, it's, it's over your shoulder, it's there day by day. Um, Different things bug you at different times. People younger than you uh, who just tanked for no reason. Uh, life is cruel sometimes. It's beautiful, you know, but uh, I, I just want to have a life without death. I, I actually want to, I'd like to go to a point 
where at the end of a month I went, wow, I went through the whole month and I didn't even think about dying or death or dead bodies one day. You know, and, and I haven't had one day in 47 years, you know. Again, whatever issue I have, if I had my life to live all over again, I wouldn't take a different turn. You know, I'd keep, I'd do what I've done all over again. It's not like I'm regretting anything. It's just, you know, hey, we all have our cross to bear, and I guess that is mine. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about becoming a donor, you can email the University of Utah Body Donor Program at bodydonor at lists.utah.edu. You can also call the office weekdays 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 801-581-6728 or at any other time at 801-581-2121. This show is written by John Peterson and produced by myself, Elaine Taylor. Music by Lobo Loco.